Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. In my life, there have been a number of people who've influenced me. They've influenced my thinking, they creep into my stories, and they have impacted my career and my work. Now, some of those people are aware of the impact they've had, and I can honestly say some of them are not aware of that impact. Maybe I should correct that someday. But I think that's true for many of us. We talk about mentors, and some of them are people we've labeled as mentors, and others are just people who've been there who've influenced us. Now, today's episode is about people my guest has met and interviewed on his wildly popular podcast and the insights and wisdom he's gained from them. And he's called these some of his mentors. So I think this is going to be a pretty interesting episode where we get to hear from somebody who interviews some of the world's best leaders coming and going and saying, what did you take from them over the course of time? So my guest today is Scott Jeffrey Miller, and I can honestly say there are very few people I have on as a three-cap Scott, you're one of them. So that says a lot about how much I enjoy talking to you. He's had a 25-year career serving as the Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President of Business Development for the Franklin Covey Company, and he is now acting as Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership and leading the strategy and development of the firm's Speakers Bureau, as well as the publication of podcasts, webcasts, and best-selling books. Scott's the host of On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest and fastest growing leadership podcast. Okay, Scott, I'll take you on about that one, but you do have pretty strong listenership, and he's reaching more than 6 million people weekly. All right, in addition, Scott authors a leadership column for Inc.com, and he's the best-selling author of the Mess to Success series. But today, the book that we're going to talk about is... Manage Master Mentors. Thank you very much, Scott. Welcome to the show, Scott. Wanda, thank you for the nice introduction. Uh, an honor to be back. I, would, I think three times is a trifecta, but I don't know if that's true. I don't think my talent is a trifecta. So what an honor <laughs> to come back today and talk about the mentors that are in everybody's lives and the roles that we can play as mentors and others. I think it's important. And I think what's interesting too, especially about the book that you've written, I mean, you have interviewed some amazing people. Um, And what's interesting about that is sometimes the message you take from them is not necessarily the message that they are most known for in the world at large. So I find that fascinating. So, you know, we just all encounter people and we take something from the people that we meet. And I think that's what's so interesting about the book and about what you're doing with this new series, I should add. So um, I have to ask why, though. I always ask why. So you've been writing this great, wildly successful book about the Mess to Success series, the uh, business or leadership management mess to leadership success and marketing mess, and you've shifted now to this mentoring. Why? Why did you want to write this series? Because I'm easily distracted? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> no, the, the Mess to Success series is still going to happen. I have Job Mess to Career Success and Communication Mess to Influence Success coming out of the next few years. But I really started to appreciate that I think one of my contributions is as an aggregator. I'm a pollinator. Is that I don't know if I've ever had an original idea in my life. Wanda, most people haven't. But 
I'm okay with that. And I think I have been privileged to, like you, host this very successful podcast where I can spotlight, provide a platform for people that allows millions of people to improve their careers, their marriages, their brands, make better decisions. And so the Master Mentor Series is really about using the platform that Franklin Covey has provided me and that I've in many ways co-created to allow greater access to some of our greatest minds. And so I'm doing them concurrently. I have a 10-year, 10-volume deal with HarperCollins on Master Mentors and a 10-year, 10-volume contract with Mango on the Mess of Success series, plus other things that if I told you, you wouldn't believe me, so I won't divulge those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say you are amazing at the volume in which you produce the book, so that's really, really quite impressive. I should say um, many years ago, it's probably 20, 25 years ago, I picked up a book by complete random. I couldn't even tell you who it was, where they had said, you know, here are the top 25 gurus on leadership, and here's one page, two pages on their core idea. What is this about? And I thought, what a brilliant strategy to take to synthesize what a key message is about, put it in a digestible place and a great reference place. And that's part of what I like about this whole mentor, a master mentor series but the personal side of it, what, how does it impact you? I also found really exciting in the reading. Okay, so let's take some examples because what I want to do today um, is to drill into some of the lessons that you've gotten. So let's take one that how can you not be impressed by, Vic Vujicic. And for each of these, I want to know, kind of tell me a little bit about the story, about your interaction with them. Um, tell us who the person is in case yeah. everybody doesn't know. And then what did you learn from them? What do you take from them? Why does that matter to you? So start with Nick. Sure. So Nick's last name is difficult to pronounce for many. Uh, I'll, I'll refer to it as Nick Vujicic, kind of like a voyage, Nick Vujicic. He's Australian by birth. He's American by choice. A pretty well-known author, inspirational speaker, motivational speaker, and has a large podcast. And, and unlike you and I, he, however, was born without limbs, no arms and no legs. Many people will, will, will Google now Nick Vujicic and you'll realize, oh, yeah, I've heard of him. He is a remarkable individual, has a head and a neck and a torso and a groin, much like you and I, but nothing beneath um, his groin area or arms or legs. And he is absolutely a model for what I call Gratitude. That is the first transformational mm-hmm. insight in the book. And you might think, well, why would, what would Nick have to be grateful about? Well, so Nick's grateful for everything he has and, and maybe even what he doesn't have because he's built an amazing life of magnetism and positivity with no arms and no legs. Nick is dependent, Wanda, on somebody for everything, scratching his head, for adjusting his glasses, using the restroom, dressing himself, eating. Nick is incapable of doing anything alone with the exception of controlling his mindset, his paradigms, his beliefs. He very much lives in the future and not the past. He lives in the present moment. He's grateful for all he has in his life. And I share a story in the book around how my wife and I, Stephanie, live in Salt Lake City, and we're privileged once or twice a month to hold dinner parties in our backyard. We invite usually a celebrity over and eight or 10 or 12 or 15 of our friends from all walks of life. And Nick was a guest once and was sitting in my living room prior to the other dinner guest arriving. And I was just watching Nick, realizing how ungrateful I had been in my life here to that point for my hands and my legs and my arms and my fingers. And you can read the, they read the, the book to learn the, the story. But 
the big idea was how Nick has instilled in me a level of gratitude that I never had, including gratitude for things that might seem as burdens. I've mentioned in, this, in the book, I, I tell a story about how on Sunday evenings in Salt Lake City in the winter where it's zero degrees and the, the, it, it's dark by four o'clock and I have to take the garbage out at night. And I dread taking the garbage out because I slip and slide across the driveway and get out to the garbage cans and cling on and realize that tomorrow morning is garbage day, right? Where the right. garbage cans have to now, three of them, be rolled down 80 yards out to the street. And I always dread that. I have to take the garbage cans out. Right. Now, the reason I mention that is because in the chapter, I talk about how I think it's so valuable to have this paradigm of not I have to, not I ought to, but I get to. I get to. To take the garbage out because Nick Vujicic cannot take the garbage out. But even further in life, I get to have a high courage conversation with a colleague. I get to terminate someone tomorrow because they're not right for this role and we're not right for them. I get to send them on their way. I think the power of this first chapter beyond gratitude is how do you see everything in your life as a challenge, as a joy through not the lens of I have to or I ought to, but rather I get to. Got to. I have listened prior to reading your chapter on Nick. I've listened to uh, at least one of his podcasts, which I have to tell you, or one of his speeches. I have to tell you, they're it's really they're powerful. They're very powerful, and not because he doesn't have limbs, but because his presence is incredibly powerful. And this phrase of "I get to to I have the privilege to I get to do this I get to have this influence." There's so many ways in which we can reframe. It's incredible. It, it's, it's, it, this, this should not be lost in everyone. It has transformed my life. Last week, I had the privilege of delivering four keynotes to the Middle East, 12.30 a.m., 2 a.m., like 3.30 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. from Salt Lake City. Typically, I would dread that. I, I'm 53. I don't do well without sleep. And the whole night, I just reminded myself, I get to do this. This is an honor when typically I would have you know, been fairly um, unexcited about it, if that's a word, it's not. But it can transform your life when you think, I get to drive you know, across the country this month or whatever it is. I get to pay my power bill. I get to pay a tenth of my American Express bill. I get to pay a tenth because <laughs> I have a tenth of it. It, can really, it actually can, can, it can, I think, lift anyone up regardless of your circumstance. Right. Reminds me of a conversation I was having today with someone else that I was coaching who's struggling with some particular dynamics going on in her organization. And that phrasing of I get to have this influence, I get to have an impact here, I think would be helpful to her and to everybody else. Okay, Nick, powerful story. I get to. Let's move to the next one. Susan David. Susan David is master mentor number four. She actually is uh, South African by birth. She is a Harvard Medical School psychologist, very well known for her TED Talk on emotional agility and the best-selling book by the same name. Uh, I'm absolutely captivated. She's a practicing psychologist in residence at the medical school and is just one of the most uh, influential people I've ever met. A, her South African accent, of course, is delightful, and she's, you know, a delightful, well-accomplished woman, but she's so vulnerable, so relatable, and she really taught me the power of understanding the difference between facts and our emotions, our appealing opinions, and our feelings. Both are valuable, but they're different, and Wanda, this might seem like a duh moment for your listeners and viewers, but I'll tell you, I spent most of my life 
conflating the two, confusing the two, you know, or as a chief marketing officer presenting my opinions as facts because I was powerful or my position allowed me to. And I think I'll tell you in a moment of vulnerability, I probably manipulated some people over the course of my career by by presenting my feelings or my opinions as facts or better worse, perhaps using those facts to support my narrative through, oh, but through this lens, if you look at it through this, you get the point, right? So I had an amazing epiphany with Dr. David around that this is really a, a new leadership competency, is it not? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marriage competency is being emotionally nimble and agile, being able to change your mind. Not with not just because of the last person you met with. We've all met that leader that, you know, just agrees with the last most charismatic meeting he had or she had. And this is about being open to be influenced. It's really about also recognizing when, if you're like me, I like to negotiate. I like to be prepared. I like to make sure that when I go into a high stakes meeting that I'm not caught, you know, surprised. So what I'll do is I'll role play both sides of the conversation. I'll be ready to go into a CEO meeting with my CEO and I'll, I'll, I'll want to get something funded or approved. And so I'll role play to my car or my office on the way to work. I'll say this and then he'll say that. And then I'll say this and then he'll say that. And then I'll say this and you get the point. Yeah. I'll walk in ready for a fight with him. And he's like, good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm like, I'm mad at you because I've been fighting <laughs> you in the car, winning this argument. The same with my marriage. So Susan's taught me the value of there's, there, there is benefit in being prepared. And then there's detriment to relationships and thinking that you're preparing, but you're, you think you're playing both sides of the conversation. And before you know it, you have wrongly portrayed the other person's emotions or feelings or positions. And so that has taught me maybe to be a little less prepared, not mm-hmm. so much as what they will say, but are, am I open to their paradigm? Am I open to their mindset? Am I open to be influenced by them? Or am I just you know, hell bent on forcing my agenda down. I, I've matured a bit, a bit since meeting and interviewing Dr. David. Great. I think this ability to separate facts, logic, rational, rationalization, from emotions, opinions, feelings, but instinct is probably one of the most important skills for our world going forward in every aspect of life. And we're not terribly good at it as human beings. We confound the two. So we have feelings and emotions, and then we tell ourselves a story, and that story becomes now the fact because we've told ourselves a rational logic thing. And, you know, it's most times wrong, and it destroys relationships. So this ability to separate the two is, wow, it's powerful, really, really powerful. Okay, I like that, that you get to go into your meetings a little less prepared and a little less forcing your agenda and a little more open to changing your mind, Imagine which that. is <laughs> separating facts from emotions, opinions, and feelings. Hmm. Pretty powerful. Okay, your third one I want to talk about is one of my favorite people, um, Daniel Pink. Yeah, so keep in mind, the book is called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. So to be featured in the book, you had to have appeared in the podcast. So after the first 100 episodes, I, I teased out uh, some fairly episodic uh, mm-hmm. insights. In fact, a, a publisher passed on it in the beginning, and they regret mm-hmm. that now. They thought it was too episodic. But this one is a little bit sort of left field. Daniel Pink, of course, the, you know, the famed speechwriter and, and scientist and author, uh, recently of the book, When, W-H-E-N, all about timing in life. He talks mm-hmm. about the best time 
to appear in front of a parole board. I'd suggest never, but he would say first. <laughs> and the best time to have surgery, he would say first or second, earliest in the morning. Yeah. And he talks a lot about how important timing is in our own lives. And, you know, again, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that in my 50s, I learned of this idea, but he talked about our own circadian rhythm, not an idea that he invented, but presented it to understand what is our own peak trough and recovery. And I kind of had never thought of it in the context in which Daniel shared it. And it was really around me understanding when is my peak, when is my trough and when is my recovery? And perhaps to some people's horror, I actually, I actually print out my entire schedule in the book that my peak is really about 4 a.m. to around 10 a.m. Some days it's 5 to 11, but most days I'm a very early riser. I write my column for Inc. Magazine. You know, I'm a, I, I write my books from like 5 to 6.30. I'm a dad from 6.30 to 8. I'm an entrepreneur and leader the rest of the day. And then it flips again. I'm a, a dad, a spouse, and a writer. And so for me, it was super valuable to understand how to align my schedule more deliberately, more intentionally around my peak, my trough, my recovery, because I get a bit comatose between about 11 and 1. I'm that kind of typical male, three squares a day. I get obsessed with lunch around 1030 in the morning. I like to eat and I like to eat dinner and, and I like protein at my meals. And then I, I have a bit of a trough from around 11 to 1, and then I have a, somewhat of a recovery from 1 to 5. But, you know, by 5 p.m., I've worked... 13 hours. And so I, I, you, you will find me asleep every night at 9.30. You, you could not wake mm-hmm. me from the dead at 10 p.m. at night because I'm getting up at four and I'm writing and in some cases podcasting. So for me, the transformational insight was how to better, more deliberately schedule my meetings. High stakes meeting with the CFO, not at lunch. <laughs> no, eight in the morning. Something yeah. more administrative, bring it on. I'm happy to talk over lunch or at 2 p.m. But I think as a leader, it really forced me to better understand what are the circadian cycles of those who report to me or I work with. I have a, I have a lady that reports to me who's eminently competent. She runs PR. She tends to start her day around 10 a.m., believe it or not, and she works fiercely in the afternoons and the evenings. And our, and our schedules mismatch. The problem was she would start sending me a barrage of emails at around 3 and 4 in the afternoon. And I'm like, I'm done. I've worked 12 hours. And that was kind of when she was getting her, her peak, so to speak. So we've had some great conversations on better matching our schedules. Not every point, right? I have meetings at five and she has meetings at eight. But for me, Daniel gave me a gift on better intentionally aligning my schedule on my own natural levels of energy, high and low. Great. I, you know, this is a couple of years ago that he wrote the book. It's a fabulous book. I totally agree with you. And I think it's more relevant today than it's ever been. Because I think part of what's happened in the pandemic is that we have lost all sense of our natural circadian rhythm. Yeah. And anything we used to do in our day that paced the day, like going into the office or leaving the office or going out for lunch or going out for a coffee or whatever it was that you did, paced the day. And that's all gone. And so we've, I think what we've done is lose all sense of recovery and that we've got to start building some of that back in. And I like this notion. I'd never thought about it in terms of thinking about the peak, your peak performance time and how do I align what I'm doing, what's most important to that peak performance time and how do I allow my team to- What's yours? What's your peak, your trough and your recovery? I'm not a 4 a.m. person. That is not the time to get me going, but I am an 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m. 
So my first thinking in the morning is the best time and my worst, and I'm good until about one or two, Mm -hmm. three, four or five. Ugh. Yeah. A little bit of a dip. And then I hit, I'll hit a peak again in the evening, but that's that three, four, five is the, is the danger zone for me. And And for you, I'm sure you are deliberately taking your, your highest important, most valuable coaching calls, right. And your writing time and your interview time. Yeah. It makes sense. You don't always get that choice. It sometimes gets dumped on you, but I bet you could predict which meetings are better than others based on my own natural circadian rhythms. Okay, so let's move to um, an executive, Ann Chow. Yeah, so Ann Chow is the uh, CEO of AT&T Business, a nearly $40 billion division of AT&T. She is the first ever non-white, non-male CEO in their 140-plus year history. She is the lead author of a book called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias and has for two years in a row been named uh, number 44 in Fortune Magazine's list of most powerful women in business, uh, a friend of mine. And she taught me the value of really understanding what is your motive, mm-hmm. especially when you're asking questions of other people. The story in the book, I think, is, is transformational because Anne is um, Asian American. And when you look at her, for people who perhaps haven't traveled much in the, in the um, Asia Pacific area, they might wonder, is she Chinese, Japanese? Is she Thai? Is she Taiwanese? Is she Filipino? Someone might not know, mm-hmm. uh, unless, you, unless you traveled a lot in Asia. The fact of the matter is, Anne is um, Taiwanese-American. Her parents were born in Taiwan. She is from America. And the story she shares is that for many years in her life, people would say, hey, Anne, where are you from? And she knew what they were doing. But she would say, oh, I'm from Texas, Dallas, Texas. And they would say, no, and where are you really from? Oh, I mean, where did I grow up? Oh, Jersey. I'm a total Jersey girl. And then they would say, frustratingly, no, where are you really from? And she would say, oh, where was I born? Oh, I was born in the Midwest. Now, she knows what they're really asking is they're asking, what is your ethnicity? What is your race? Because you don't look like me and I kind of can't figure it out. And what they're subconsciously thinking, many of them is, you're not from around here and I'm trying to figure out how to place you. How did you get here and why are you here? Now, few of us would ever agree to that, but all of us have biases and unconscious biases and we're all prejudiced, of course, to some degree or another. And so Anne really talks about what does it matter? What does it matter? And when we ask people questions about them, Think about what is your motive? How are you going to use that information? How are you going to use that against them or for them? And I'll tell you one, it haunts me. Last week I was in Miami and I was taking an Uber and the woman clearly was not a, um, English was not her first language. It was clearly Spanish. And so it was haunting me because I wanted to know where she was from. I don't know why. I figured she was Cuban. I was trying to create some rapport. We had about a half an hour drive and I didn't want to have any phone calls. And the, the, the chapter with Anne was haunting me. The questions I was asking her, probing, trying to figure, was she Venezuelan? Was she Colombian? Was she Cuban? In the hopes that I might develop some rapport. And I did my best to resist asking her, where was she from? She disclosed it at some point. And it's not a, it doesn't mean that it's, it's a bad thing to ask someone where they're from. The idea in the chapter is just to understand your motive. What does it matter? Does it even matter? Because most people will tell you what they need for you to know. Most people will tell you what they need for you to know about them. And I'll tell you, as a Caucasian male, 
that's you know a former executive in a public company, I recognize that I have a certain level of in, inherent power and influence over people, and not everyone is like me and had my same journey by any stretch. And a new leadership competency obviously is embracing and celebrating diversity and inclusion, and and not making people feel that they're not like you, or if they, or or recognizing that they aren't like you, and that's great. There's there's more to unpack there, but. The big transformational insight is really just asking yourself, what's your motive? Why does it matter? That's an interesting question. I I will confess that I often ask people their heritage. Yes, the same. Because I want to know what are the cultural influences on you and your thinking pattern. And particularly as I'm trying to coach people or advise someone about coaching other people. Now, would Anne say that's not a good, that's a bad thing to do? She wouldn't say that any of it's bad. She would just simply ask you to know what is your motive and ask what you'd like. So Anne, Anne will say, I've, she would say that she has matured a lot, that early on she had her boxing gloves on and would use it as a teaching moment. Now she's like, I get it. I understand. And, uh, you know, being the first non-Caucasian, non-white, non-male CEO AT&T, it's been, I think, good and bad for her. Right. She'll tell you right. that. So she would not tell you, don't ask that. She would just ask you, why does it matter? In your case, if you're a coach, it might well matter if you're Japanese because they have a very different cultural hierarchy and organizations there than it does perhaps in Spain, right? So she would just say, be clear what your motive is and then make sure that you're using that information not against someone, but perhaps for, to lift, to rise, to inspire them, to educate yourself. Yeah, the problem with asking uh, my question, if I'm really honest, is that it encourages me to stereotype. It does. It absolutely does. You're right. You're right. I, by the way, it's I ask the same question. I will ask someone, what is your heritage? Because I, I honestly, I do want to know what country they're from. Perhaps I've been there. Maybe I had a good experience there. Or I researched the former dictator or whatever it is, right? And so I, I ask the same question, but now... I, I, I get really self-reflective on making sure that I know what my intent is. Right. And hopefully my intent is like yours is to build some commonalities, but that's not for all of us. And we all have biases and, you know, to be human is to have biases. All biases right. aren't bad. A right. lot of them are bridge builders, right? And context setters, especially right. for Americans who I think some shocking, highly high amount of Americans don't own a passport, which means they've not met someone from Taiwan. They've not been to Colombia, right? Right. right. Well, I do get very well how old it gets for people who have a different facial feature than the typical Americans or different skin color, different eye features, different hair texture, whatever than typical American. And the presumption is that you were not born here, raised here, fully American in some way. And when you're, in fact, you could easily be five generations American. I mean, just... So there is, I get that that gets old and I understand why Anne would sort of say, why does it matter where I'm from? So that's an interesting, I I agree with you. Okay. I'm going to, that's a perfect one. All right. So this is a great spot for us to take a break. With me today is Scott Miller. The series that we're talking about are Master Mentors, lovely book, absolutely great stories, 30 of them. People Scott has interviewed in the last few years and the lessons he's taken from each of them. So here's the highlights of this half. Number one, I'm going to put this in terms of questions. Number one, what is it that you get to do today, even if it isn't all that 
even if you thought it was negative at the beginning? What is it that you get to do that you have the privilege to do? Number two question, how do you separate the facts from your opinions, feelings, and emotions so that you're open to what somebody else might have to say that is different and not confound those two? Number three, when's your peak and how are you aligning your day with your peak? And I'm going to throw the question in, where's your recovery and what are you doing to build your recovery? And then the third question, whatever question you were asking of people, why does it matter? How are you going to use that information? Scott, if this doesn't prove the point of the series, I don't know what does, because those strike me as four very powerful questions for anybody to be reflecting on as they're thinking about how they're leading and working with people. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got a few more to talk about, including um, Stanley McChrystal and Stedman Graham, just to name a couple. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Scott Miller. 
Scott is um, a host of one of the world's largest and fastest growing leadership podcast series called On Leadership. He's also the author of the Mess to Success series, which has been featured on this podcast a couple of times. And he writes a leadership column for Inc.com. What we're talking about today is the first volume in a series called Master Mentors. And we've just been looking at some of the amazing people Scott has interviewed over the years. But more importantly, the lessons he's taken from those individuals. So we're going to continue with that story because A, I enjoy the stories and B, I think the insights are amazing. So let's go to a guy by the name of Stedman Graham. Some people know, may know who he is and some may not. So what's the story here? Sure. So Stedman Graham is master mentor number 18, a very successful former professional sports player around Europe. He is a very uh, accomplished entrepreneur, author, one of the greatest investors in urban youth leadership in America. And for those who may not know him for his investment in urban youth leadership, he is the life partner of Oprah Winfrey. They've been together for 30 years. I don't, although I don't think they are you know, formally married, they are, they are just that uh, for three decades. And so Stebbin writes a lot about your identity. Like, let me stop there for a moment. That is kind of his expertise. Right. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the life partner for three decades of arguably the most famous human being in the world. Certainly one of the wealthiest and most influential and famous and publicly recognized. She's in that one name club, right? You know, Pink and Cher and Madonna and Oprah and Raphael and things like that. So imagine what it would be like to create an identity for yourself outside that relationship. But this is one of the most humble, practical, kind, gentle, pragmatic people I've ever met. Seven, I've been, I've been friends for 20 years. He came on the podcast and he taught me something that I thought was profound for me, Wanda. It was this idea about choosing your identity. The operative word there is choosing because what Stebman reminds us of is that most of us are simply living our lives, fulfilling the identity that others placed on us. Most of us was our parents. Mm-hmm. or caregivers or guardians, or perhaps it was your rabbi or imam or your priest or your first grade teacher or your scout leader. For me, it was definitely my parents. My parents are fortunately still alive. They live in the same home I was raised in in Orlando, Florida, and have been married for 60 years. And my brother, who is my older sibling, just he and I, he is a chemical engineer. He has a master's in engineering from MIT. He is a black belt Six Sigma. My father was very much similar. So when I was born and raised, they thought I was like the wild child, right? You know, on political mm-hmm. campaigns, and I was a realtor and a project manager, and I was a salesperson, and then a, a marketing person and a podcast host. They're like, how do you even earn money? I, I think they think I'm probably bankrupt because they can't compute that. The fact of the matter is my brother is 10 times better educated than I am, and I'll bet you my W-2 is 10 times what his was last year. Not exactly Mike, sorry, but I did Okay. <laughs> my, my point is, I think it was, it was Stedman that gave me permission to kind of stop craving my parents' approval on everything and, mm-hmm. and move out of their, their paradigm of what success looked like, out of their paradigm about what they valued. My parents value consistency, safety, security, because they were raised with families that had none of that. Mm-hmm. I'm much mm-hmm. more entrepreneurial. I love risk. And I've moved to London and Chicago and Utah where I knew nobody, right? I'm a, I'm a calibrated risk taker. And so it was, it was after meeting Stedman that I realized at the age of 40 something late, 
that I was going to choose my own identity and respect my parents, but I was going to fulfill my own identity. Who did I want to be in the future? What was important to me? And I think a lot of people listening probably think, well, this is, again, you know, a no-brainer, but how many of us have really deliberately chosen mm-hmm. the identity that we want to fulfill for ourselves? Mm-hmm. Because I think in many ways in organizations with, with, with more, you know, standard old school cultures, we assimilate into an identity that is safe in the organization, what, they, what the organization values, what is valued here, how do you get promoted? And in many ways, I did that. You know, I was a bit of a bull in a china shop at Franklin Covey, right? A, organization from Utah, where the majority of the state are members of a religious faith that I was not a member of. I was a single Catholic boy from Orlando moving to a Latter-day Saint culture. So in many ways, I assimilated into that culture to thrive and survive. And although there was never any religious pressure or or anything in the company, I had, I had an astronomical uh, ascendancy in the company, I'm sure I took on the identity of what was valued in that organization, like many of us do. So I think less and less, this is something for the younger generation. I think they tend to choose their identity more and more proactively. But for people that perhaps in their 40s or 50s or 60s, like I am, I'd ask yourself, is it time to shed the identity that someone else picked for you and choose your own? All right, Scott, that is so relevant to two, three particular things that I have to tie for it. It's what a powerful question. What's your identity? What identity am I choosing? But as you're working with people in an organization, you've also got to be careful that you're not placing an identity on those people that you need them to hold in order for you to be comfortable. And I see that all the time, a different style, a different approach, a different way. We don't like it so much, but it's actually not really a problem. It's just we don't like it so much. So I want to change your identity as my colleague or as my team member. It's an interesting question. That is why you are one of the world's most influential leadership coaches and why I have invited you to appear in Master Mentors Volume 3, because you have you know, decades of reps, both probably being on the receiving end of that. And maybe even being on the, on the giving end, right? As you were asking that question, I immediately thought about my role as the chief marketing officer. And I am sure I did that on numerous occasions subconsciously, maybe not nefariously, but I'm sure it diminished and minimized people. I know it did. Well, it forces them to change, but then people just accept that as opposed to saying, let's have a conversation about what it is you want me to do and how I might do that as opposed to what you want me to do. Um, it also reminds me, if you look at Olympic class athletes, people wanting to be Olympic class athletes, particularly in their teenage adolescent years, formative years for progress on this one. What most of the sports psychology coaches will say is that that kid, that teenager, has to decide why they are playing the sport. What is it for them? And it can't be what mom and dad want, what a coach wants, what somebody else wants. It has to be your own. And you figure out what your own is. You don't have the mental stamina to actually do what you need to do. So I just think that's a fascinating one. The third, go ahead. Well, it's such great parenting advice, right? I mean, I have three young boys with my wife, Stephanie, that are seven, nine, and 11. And I have, to, I have a very strong personality and I'm a loud person. I have a public image now. And I have to be really thoughtful, Wanda, around what identity my placing on my children, right? You're going to be a tennis star, or you're going to be an author, or 
it's and I, and I fell into the trap of wanting to help give them an identity to kind of you know move them through the tough teen years, right? All the temptations and the challenges in a tough world. And as a parent, you have to be really deliberate and thoughtful around not placing an identity on your children that wasn't one that they choose. Right. Right. So hard to do, though. Ooh, so hard. That's back to um, the Susan David comment, separate out the facts of what these kids or people do from our emotions, feelings, and opinions about what they should or shouldn't do. All right. Um, The third piece I have to say about this because I can't resist, I gave a talk earlier this week uh, to one of my clients, and the notion was, what do I think are the three most important skills to develop for your career going forward? And would you believe one of my three? Um, one had to do with conflict, one had to do with resilience, and the third had to do with identity. Wow. Who are you? What do you stand for? What are you about? Because if you can't answer that one, then you can't do the resilience and you can't do the conflict. So and I think like never before, companies care. Hire, yeah. Hiring organizations now care. They don't think they did when I grew up in organizations, but now I think if they expect to retain and recruit top talent, they do care what your identity is and how can you thrive in this organization. Right. Right. They need to, if they're going to succeed. All right. Great conversation. I can imagine that would be a very powerful discussion with uh, Stedman Graham. Let's talk about um, Stanley McChrystal. So General McChrystal is a four-star American army general. He led America's intervention invasion into Afghanistan 20 years ago. He was fired by president Barack Obama for disparaging comments that he and those in his command said to an um, Esquire interview about then Vice President Joseph Biden. He's gone on to a very influential career in corporate America, advising, coaching, and a very famous author. He's become a good friend of mine. And his his insight, I call being on the right side of history. I'll try Mm -hmm. to condense this story because I'm mindful of our time. Uh, General McChrystal, of course, went to West Point had an amazing career in the army as a four-star general. His wife, very early in their career, gave him a photograph of General Robert E. Lee, who of course commanded the Confederate troops. Most people fail to remember that President Lincoln first asked Robert E. Lee to command the Union troops and he declined and then went on to command the Confederate troops. It was Ulysses S. Grant that was asked second. Most people associate Robert E. Lee with perhaps being a sympathizer for slavery. I'm not sure that is true. In any event, he has, of course, been demonized. Robert, Robert E. Lee was a big influence in General McChrystal's life. He went to Robert E. Lee Elementary School. He lived in Lee Barracks at West Point. And his wife gave him this picture of Robert E. Lee on like one of their first anniversaries. Mm-hmm. And for all around the world, when they moved, they hung this picture up in their home. Well, several years ago, you remember, an outrageously despicable event happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. I wished our then leader would have called it that. There was a white supremacist neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville where General McChrystal lives and a counter protester was killed. And it was during that time that um, McChrystal's wife told him he should take that picture down in their home. And he says, yeah, I don't want to. I mean, it means a lot to me. It, It was a gift from you like 25 years ago. We've had it in all of our homes. And he wrestled with it. And then one day he decided that he did not want people to come into his home and get the wrong impression. He wanted to be very clear about how he felt about what had happened in his community with this white supremacist neo-Nazi rally where many leaders of the country failed to condemn unequivocally. 
They were good people, quote, on both sides, was I think the statement our leader said. So one day, unceremoniously, Dr. or Mr. General McChrystal, he asked me to call him Stan, I can't do it. General McChrystal <laughs> took the picture down and threw it in the garbage can. Long before George Floyd, long before Black Lives Matter, long before the social justice movement, he threw it out. And with little fanfare, he wrote about it barely in one of his books and talked about it in our interview. And to me, it was really profound to say, so are you on the right side of history? Whatever that means for you, whether it be with the vaccinations or the pandemic or your own biases or your politics or making good decisions in your family. I once heard someone want to say something profound. They said, everything in life is black or white until it affects someone you love. And I think that is so true, whether it is, you know, LGBTQ, whether it is religion, whether it is your values or your politics or the vaccination or mass or whatever it is in life. I'm not, I'm not evangelizing any position at all, but I think there is great wisdom to take from McChrystal's example. Perhaps he should have thrown that photograph out years beforehand. I, I don't, I'm not judging him on that. I would just ask our listeners and viewers and readers to say, are you on the right side of history? Are you willing to change your mind and be open to be influenced by someone else? That is um, my understanding of the history. Somebody, I'm sure, will correct me on this one of Robert E. Lee, that he was much admired as a general among the troops, that he did something incredibly well as a leader, even though we might not admire the cause for which he fought or say today that that cause has taken on a different turn that, you know, we have, we have problems with. Right. But that idea of saying, I'm going to take something that I have treasured, and I'm going to say this treasure, for whatever reason I valued it on my own, now has fallen on the wrong side of history. We understand differently. We see the impact differently. And I'm going to change. That's a pretty powerful statement to make. It, it is. And I, as powerful, I think, is this, uh, this uh, adage that I'm not attributing properly to someone is everything is black or white until it impacts someone love you love. love. And then you're, overnight, your position changes when your son comes home and says, I'm gay. And you want to save his life because he's being bullied or someone has a different opinion or someone has. And then you realize you're like, you're like, you know, mother cub, so to speak. Right. And you change right. your position overnight on something. It's, it's something to think about. I think it's us. right. I love, in fact, I like that so much. I wrote it down. Everything is black and white until it affects somebody you love. Yeah. Particularly somebody you want to protect. That's right. Pretty powerful. Okay. Let's talk about Seth. And I don't know how you would properly Go say it. Seth Godin. Godin. Okay, yes. Seth Godin. Yeah, I'm delighted we're ending here. So Seth Godin is one of the most um, iconic authors of our time. He will call himself an iconoclast. He has the world's largest daily followed blog. He's written 40 plus books. He, by most accounts, invented internet email marketing. Unlike Al Gore, who invented the internet, he, he, he invented uh, email marketing. And he's been a dear friend of mine, probably the, one of the best marketing minds in the world. And Seth taught me the value of being fearless versus reckless. He's master mentor number 21. And I had never thought of this juxtaposition, fearless and reckless, because for many years, I realized that I was masquerading as being fearless when in fact, I was really being reckless I was that guy that sort of told it like it was. I called out the elephant in the room. I might comment on something you were wearing, thinking it was funny. I was being fearless. 
When in fact, I was being reckless with my brand, with your brand, with your feelings, with your reputation. And I was one of those jackasses who'd realized there was a difference between what you say and what you think, and that there are both private thoughts and that as a verbal kind of processor, I tend to process my thoughts out loud. I'm a very creative person. And many times that has been um, jeopardizing of a relationship or diminishing someone else when I was processing my thoughts out loud, quite selfish, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And so Seth taught me a transformational insight, which was, are you being fearless or are you being reckless? And it, maybe, maybe it's not profound to others, but I realized I spent too many years being fearless, thinking I was being fearless. And many, many times, you know, righting wrongs or bringing justice to a conversation. In that case, I was being fearless and perhaps I gave myself some latitude or liberty to go further than I should have. And then I became reckless with not just myself and my own reputation, but perhaps more importantly, reckless with somebody else's because of my positional power, because of my vocabulary, because of my personality or the, the, really the, the, the level of my voice, which tends to be quite elevated. I, I cast a pretty strong shadow. I'm, I have a fairly ferocious personality. I've been called ferocious. And so for me, I'm, I, I'm much more deliberate now on not just shepherding my own brand, but shepherding others as well as well. And do you have wisdom, Scott, on when fearless becomes reckless? I mean, so I take your point that when it's starting to damage somebody else's reputation or somebody else's brand, that that's tipped into the reckless. But do you have any other wisdom on how to know the difference between those two? When does fearless tip to reckless? You probably would have maybe even more insight. So I'll leave some time for you to answer your own question. I'm a fairly impulsive person. I have a Mm -hmm. bias to action. I'm a master executor. I often rush to tactics versus taking some time to sit back and think about strategy, to think about unintended consequences, to think about timing. Is this the right time to call this out? Would this be done better in private versus public? Should I call the CEO after hours and process this thought versus in front of her entire executive team? So for me, I think uh, you can still be fearless, but perhaps you know give that person the the advantage of knowing I would like to address this issue. When would be the best time for me to share my thoughts on this so that I don't ambush you or ambush others as well? So that would be my thought. I'd ask your opinion, Wanda. What do you think? The way you just said that made me think, how do you continue to be fearless? Well, one, let's go back to one of the earlier questions from Ann Chow, which is why does this matter? So if we're looking at our motive and saying, why does it matter? And you still say that this is a cause worth addressing, then you're fearless. But I think then it's sort of pausing to make sure that I am not doing unintentional damage to someone else. And that's tipping into the reckless. I guess that's as close as I'm going to get to how you tell the difference between the two. Nicely said. I don't think everything is a cause. And for some people it is. Okay. Not everything needs to be solved. You don't have to solve everything. You have to pick mm. your battles and recognize mm. when are you wasting your influence. You know, for me, I would advise your listeners that are younger than me to Google EF Hutton and watch the uh, commercial, right? Because there's great value in picking your battles and having a strong voice on something versus being just a sort of nattering nabob who's got an opinion on everything. And I've been called that sometimes, right? Scott, you literally have a opinion on everything. And perhaps my influence could have been better measured 
had I chosen when to be more fearless versus fearless on everything. Fearless, yeah, cho- chosen. Um, I always say to people, so my constant adage on this one, you know, we say choose your own battles, but we miss two points. One is you only get one battle at a time, meaning if you're fighting five, you're probably in the reckless category, pick one, <laughs> and you really then decide what matters. And the second thing I say is to get on a 10-point rating scale, how important is this battle? And if it's not an eight, nine, or 10, let it go. So it's just that kind of reminder, and none of either of those are genius statements, by the way, but it's just a reminder that there's more to it than just pick one. You know, like it, it does matter when you're when you're. I read a reckless. book recently. I forgot who the author was, but the person said, "If it sounds stupid, but it works, it's not stupid." <laughs> <laughs> It's a reminder. We all need a reminder. Okay, Scott, um, we have literally three minutes left. Who have we not talked about that's among your absolute favorites in these? You know, Kim Scott, Master Mentors number 11. She wrote the famous book called Radical Candor, where she shares quite vulnerably in that book and in my book, Master Mentors, how when she worked for Facebook, her then boss was Sheryl Sandberg, who now, of course, works for no, sorry, she worked for Google. Her then right. boss was Cheryl Sandberg, who now works for Facebook. And Cheryl gave her some extraordinarily valuable feedback about how Kim, when she was meeting with the founder of Google, one of the founders and the CEO, was constantly using the words um and uh, and she was like and I was like. And Cheryl called her aside and said, you sound stupid. And Kim could have taken offense to that. But Cheryl said, I want to get you a coach because you're insanely talented, but you need to become a better presenter and use your more deliberate with your words. And it's the difference of radical, the difference of the, the opposite of radical candor is what Kim calls ruinous empathy <laughs> is that leaders need to have the skill of having high courage conversations that both balance courage with diplomacy. And that literally Kim had been walking around her entire career with metaphorical spinach in her teeth because no one had given her the feedback on how often she said, um, and uh, these vocalized pauses. And apparently she had this dismissive sweeping gesture with her hand from lower left to upper right when she wanted to diminish a topic. And Cheryl said, what's that thing you do with your hand? It's very insulting. And so Kim was quite complimentary of how for the first time in her entire Silicon Valley career, it was Cheryl Sandberg that called her out in private, offered her some coaching. And then when Kim dismissed it, Kim said, no, 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 I really think you need this. It's Kim Scott, this amazing book called Radical Candor, which every leader should read. I agree. I love that book. And I love that framework too, by the way. The radical, I can give radical feedback, radical candor, so long as people know I care. But the opposite of it is caring without giving the feedback is just ruinous empathy. It's a perfect statement. Scott, we could keep going. There are many more. There's others in here that I would love to hear about. So I guess we're going to leave it to everybody to go and buy the book and read it for themselves. So let me just go back one and say what I did before, which is to hit the highlights of the questions here quickly. I get to do what? I need to separate the facts from the emotions, opinions, and feelings so that I can change my mind. When's my peak, my trough, and my uh, recovery? When I'm asking a question, why does it matter? How am I going to use the information? What's my identity that I choose for myself? How am I going to be on the right side of history? How do I avoid being reckless even when I am giving people radical candor? How's that for an hour conversation in 30 seconds? Brilliant. 
My guest today, Scott Miller, is brilliant. Not my my summary of this one. The book is called Master Mentors, and it's been a pleasure to have you on, on the show, Scott. Thank you, Wanda. Thanks for the platform. If you've enjoyed this, please like us on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to know more about how to apply these concepts and others, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 